Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I went to see the dermatologist uh, about 10 days ago. And um, I try not to go there, but I need to. I have skin cancer. And, uh, and she wants to see me uh, once a year. It had been two years. Uh, she was uh, concerned about that. And she kind of shrugged and said, well, it's freeze or cut, Dan. I guess we're going to cut today. And uh, she proceeded to look at my whole body and, uh, and point out areas. Uh, and she was dictating these to her assistant about what needed attention. And uh, how many of you have been to a dermatologist lately? She had, oh, okay, yeah, you know they have this gun with liquid nitrogen in it and they zap the actinitis keratosis, those precancer pieces on your, on your body, especially your, your head where your, son's been, your, your body's been exposed to, uh, to sun quite a bit. And, uh, um, uh, and, and she, she did that, and she said, is there anything else, anything you're concerned about, Dan? And I said, well, you know, the bottom half of my lip, of my bottom lip has, has been chapping. It just keeps chapping all through, all through the wintertime. And, and I think it was because in the summer when I was riding my, riding my motorcycle, I, I didn't put sunscreen on my bottom lip, so it just got a lot of sun. So she looked at it and said, oh, okay, we'll take care of that. So she got out her liquid nitrogen gun, and then, uh, and then she, uh, she kind of aimed it at the bottom of my lip. And then, then she said, she said, this could hurt a bit. <laughs> and she just finished that last word, bit, and then she pulled the trigger and went all across my bottom lip. And that really hurt. I, you know, wow, man, alive. You know, your lips are very sensitive. Um, that's why we like kissing so much. You're just real sensitive skin. She just really, really burned my bottom lip. And then, uh, uh, but it happened so fast, I didn't have time to think about it too much. And so she made it all the way to the side. And I thought, wow, I'm glad that's over. And then she said, well, let's do it the other way. And she, <laughs> and she started on this side and did it the other way. There were tears rolling down my face, and, uh, and she said, did that hurt? And, <laughs> and I said, no, not, not that much. <laughs> and she said, come and see me more often. <laughs> we probably heard that all the time. We heard that the dentist, right before he starts the drill or anything, this could hurt a bit. You know it's really going to hurt when they say that. <laughs> And it is uh, something that we kind of need to say as we head into Lent. Um, we are a resurrection people, well, full of joy. Uh, we celebrate the new life in Christ. And there is in every encounter with God and with each other reasons for praise and reasons for gratitude, reasons for adoration, but also in our Christian message in our life together, woven into the tapestry of who we are, and also, our gatherings of worship is a bit of pain, suffering. Um, this could hurt a bit. 
if we're really not acknowledging that, if we're not uh, participating in that, then we are missing the fullness of the joy of the Lord. And, uh, the Apostle Paul would write to the Philippians, um, I long, I long to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3, I long to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that, so that I might be raised with him in his resurrection. He knew the joys of the resurrection. He had tasted the overcoming power of God over death, sin, and evil. But he also knew that the path of that, to the fullness of it, meant to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Our text that we read at the beginning of our service in 1 Peter 3 lays it out very clearly that Christ suffered for the sins of all. He suffered so that they might be overcome. He suffered so that we might know that he identifies with us in our sufferings. And we know that he humbled himself to that degree that he, we would be able to know the love of God and also that we would be able to enter into the fullness of joy and resurrection life that he has in store for all who believe. But it's the suffering part that we kind of avoid. If I knew that my dermatologist was going to buzz my lips not once but twice, I probably would have postponed that, that meeting a couple more weeks or something. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have gone there and maybe I wouldn't have told her and I thought, well, it's not that bad. I'm just going to buy a whole case of chapstick and just the rest of my life, I'm just going to keep greasing up my, my bottom lip. But I have to tell you today, 10, ten days later, that my, my lip is healed that, praise God, and there's a resurrection thing happening on my, on my bottom lip. <laughs> and uh, it is a physical manifestation, manifestation, maybe a kind of a sacrament, a sacred thing, about what's happening in my outer body that ought to draw me into being able to, to suffer and to see the benefit of that in this Lenten journey in participating with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It not only seems to be part of what God has built into creation, that there is healing that comes sometimes after, after the, the burning away of, of that which is diseased, of that which uh, is, uh, is, is taking energies and, uh, from, from your body, uh, that there is something new and better that it will happen in the healing afterward, uh, but is also part of the dynamics of our spiritual life. And gold is, is refined not by, by adding more, more stuff and polishing it, but gold is refined by burning away and washing away all the impurities and so that you are left with very fine gold. And so it might be with our faith also that in our times of suffering that we really find that the promises of God are trustworthy, that the covenants, the agreements that God has made with God's people are worth building a life around. And that we find that when we come to our end of our own resources that God's resources have only begun. And even when we condemn ourselves or feel condemned by each other, there is grace, there is favor. 
There is love, there is compassion, there is hope that flows into our lives. And maybe in times of suffering when we see most clearly, hey, I, I have no reason to generate that myself and, uh, and it seems like my friends have left me or condemning me, I can't get in touch with them. And still there is within me hope, there is a buoyancy. There is, there is still life at the end of tears and grief and sorrow. There is still something worth living for. There is something in store for me even on this day. The text from Mark is, uh, covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's only five or six verses. Mark is that way. It's laconic, it's, it's terse, it covers a lot of territory in a few sentences. We could turn to Matthew and, and Luke to get a more expanded version of, the, of any one of those episodes that Mark covers in those six, seven verses. But the piece about the, the wilderness covers maybe a couple sentences. And isn't it interesting that uh, Mark, uh, because it's so packed and, and it moves so fast, um, so laconic, that's a new word that I picked up this week. It means to the point, and I'm going to preach that way. And that right after the baptism, right after the baptism, the heavens were torn apart, and this great voice comes and it said, This is my son, the beloved. Yeah, listen to him. Wow. You know, that's really a holy moment. That is something that, that uh, deserves its own sentence in Scripture. And so it's there. It is a theophany. It is a, a message from the Lord of hosts. It is something that really gets our attention. But then, right away, Mark says, he is sent into the wilderness. He was driven, the Spirit, capital S, hey, wait, capital, that's God? God's Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Oh, wait a minute, this doesn't compute. The blessed time? We think of blessings as, uh, uh, as, as a wonderful sunny day with a lot of food and just one good thing after another. Life is good, huh? This is a blessing. No, this God of blessings drives Jesus into the wilderness. And there we read that he was out in the wilderness with the wild beasts, tempted by Satan, 40 days... And the angels waited on him. All the people that were uh, listening to this for the first time knew the wilderness that they were talking about. It was a, it was a strip of land between the hills of Judea and the, and the Jordan Valley. Um, maybe four to five miles wide and 75 miles long, north to south. And, uh, and it was a, a very dry, arid uh, area and, and nothing grew there. It was a place where, uh, where thieves and robbers might, might hang out and, uh, uh, and jump on people that were traveling by or traveling by themselves. The, probably the story about the Good Samaritan and, and, uh, and, the, and the person that was set upon by robbers would have happened in the road in the wilderness. It was a place that you wouldn't go for a lot of uh, rest and relaxation. It was a place where you would, you would go to really be alone with, with your deepest concerns, with your fears. It would be a place of great vulnerability. And that's where the Spirit of God drove Jesus. 
And in that wilderness, we are led to know that through Matthew and Luke that, that he was tempted, tested actually is the real word, tested by Satan, by the adversary. Without or within, however you need to understand that. It, this is the counter spirit to, uh, to, to the God that has said, you are my beloved. And uh, Jesus in his testing responds to those tests. There's three of them that Matthew and, and Luke outline. And even using scripture, the adversary uses scripture, and, and Jesus counters with scripture. He is, clarifies who he is to be as a person called by God, what kind of a Messiah he is to be, and also the means by which he will make that kingdom come about, his Messiahship. Mark doesn't say anything about that. He just says he was out in the wilderness. He was tempted, tested by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and he was there for 40 days. I thank God for that because it helps me to uh, enter into the story a little more personally. Matthew and Luke uh, tell so much that we're kind of understanding that this is about Jesus' identity and his ministry his means uh, that he was going to pursue. But Mark kind of leaves it open for me, and maybe for you too, to, uh, to say, well, where are the wilderness places in, in my life? And even maybe, where is God driving me into some kind of wilderness place, some vulnerable place where uh, I need to come to terms with uh, adversarial thoughts and histories, memories within myself, or maybe even be tested by things that I might encounter, things that are way out of my comfort zone, the things that, uh, uh, that really make me fearful perhaps, and, and things that rock my boat, and so that I, I, I don't know what, I, what can I hang on to, and uh, maybe in those times of testing and those wilderness places in my life, I can find that God is for real, that God is strong, that God is faithful, that God is doing a work in me even. And that through the tempering and through the struggle, the impurities are burned away. And through the, through the times of fearfulness and the times of seeing very clearly, those are my limitations. I am a mortal being. And my days are numbered that I might come to realize that there is something important that God must have in mind for me in this day, in me as God's creation, and that what that might be and how that might bring fulfillment to me and glory to God. All those kinds of things really don't happen when there's a lot of racket and a lot of distractions and a lot of things going on and when we're immersed in the culture around us, they happen in a wilderness. It happened to Jesus. If we keep reading through the laconic book of Mark, we cover a lot of territory and we realize that, wow, this Jesus is not just a young carpenter from Nazareth. 
He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is a unique teacher. He is someone who is willing to suffer. He is someone who willingly dies. He is someone who is raised from life, from death to life. He is someone who is interested in forming disciples. Come to me. Come to me. Follow me. Do what I'm doing. And you will find the purpose. You will find the deepest value and fulfillment in your life. You will receive more of the presence of God in your life. And it could hurt a bit. At the very least, it's going to be uncomfortable. At the very least, this is back in the dermatologist's office, you're going to have to take off your clothes. Not physically, but you're going to have to take off stuff that you've carried with you and maybe formed your identity and your masks and maybe what kind of fits and, and who you are. And the wilderness in Lent invites us to take off some of those things to be yourself before God as you are. Spiritually naked. Saying this is who I am and, and this is what I desire. This is where I'm spending my time and my energy and, and, and also these are the self-judgments that I'm making about myself that kind of excuse me often from risking or trying more. These are all the lesser things that are in the places in my life where you ought to be, God. And I see that now. And therefore, here I am. It's in that kind of spiritually naked situation in the wilderness that we, that we start to hear the choir's anthem with with kind of a new, a new call, don't we? Yezu, joy of man's desiring. Is that what I'm desiring? In the wilderness, that kind of question occurs to me. What am I desiring? Is it Yezu, the ultimate joy? Is that my desire? Or is it one thing in a, a buffet of things that it seemed nice, and, and maybe in certain places and situations, yeah, that's, that's my desiring, Yezu. Maybe at Christmas time when it's so lovely with all the lights and the festival, and uh, maybe a certain part of the message of Jesus that seems attractive and, and so positive, and I like that, an elixir in my, in my mood that, that lifts me up, or... Or certain songs, the choir seem to invite us to, to think of a central desiring of Yezu. He can be your joy. He can be all that you need. Holy wisdom, love most high. The words in the anthem are laconic, aren't they? Only a couple dozen. Very tight poetry, but, but they invite us to, 
to listen, to hear, could this be your purpose in living? Could you find all the impurities in your life, in your soul, in your spiritual being washed away, burned away, so that you can sing, say, live this? Could you get to the point where in that last phrase that, that you can see that, that in your living, that your striving is, is worth it and is something that, that I, that you want to be doing, striving still to truth unknown. Talking about there is more of God to, to be known. There is more of the presence of God to, to welcome into my life. Until, until my life feels like a soaring and a, a dying around the throne of God. Giving all that I have and, and knowing all that's possible to be known of God in this day, in this place, in this time, in this moment, this season in my life. It seems like that's kind of where Jesus was led. It seems like that's what God had in mind in driving him into the wilderness. The unfolding of his life seems to show that, and even more, his presence in the lives of those who have believed, who have welcomed Jesus into their lives, are witness to his central transformation that he would be God's person, following God's call. I printed a quote from uh, a literary critic seeking to raise the, the level of our intellect all the time here at Covenant Church of Schaumburg, Kirsty Gunn. It was a comment that she made about a, a trend in, in publishing big books are back. Books that are 800, 900,000 pages. My son manages a bookstore and, and he's into big books and uh, he started reading one to Maida, my wife, while she couldn't see or read. She was a captive audience, so he started reading Infinite Jest. I think it's 1,500 pages and she got better real fast when uh, <laughs> he started reading that to her. It's new medicine. But Kirsty Gunn was commenting on this trend about big books. And she wrote this, if we're going to invest that kind of time in a big book, it had better change us, change us. Make us bigger somehow ourselves. I thought that was a usable thought to be transferred a little bit to, to the big book that Mark is. It's laconic, it's tight, but it's really big and its ideas and its themes and its transforming power and it's a really uh, a good book for us in Lent as we are in this season. And if we're going to invest time in that, if we're going to invest time in our worship and some of the things that Lent invites us to be, it had better change us. Because that's what 
the Spirit had in mind for Jesus. That's what the Spirit still has in mind for all those who seek God's blessing. And even hearing, you are beloved, you are mine, I love you. Be prepared that the Spirit will want to send you to a place, wilderness place, to be purified, to know even more fully, to become bigger somehow ourselves. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the stories that we have in the Bible, especially today for these verses from Mark and in their brevity they invite us to enter with our own story and with our own issues. We pray that the living God that we read about in Mark is living here and welcomes us in this time and this place, a season of Lent, to be purified, to uh, to come to terms with those things that are are taking space in our lives that uh, would be better given to you, and also the smallness of our faith. Make us bigger somehow, bigger in belief, bigger in uh, commitment, bigger in compassion bigger in service, bigger in knowing that we are your children. And I pray this through Jesus, who suffered in the wilderness, so that we might follow in his footsteps and find something that he found there. Amen. We're going to worship with a psalm. It's Selection 793, and it... Uh, as a capstone to our thoughts and our scriptures, another piece of the tapestry of our worship today. It's in the first person. The psalmist used this himself. You can use this yourself as you worship together. Let's stand as we worship 793.